Carbon credits, what are they? What good do they do? How do you get them? How do you make money from them? So really farmers should really just kind of simply think of this as just another crop. And obviously the, the harder they work to kind of improve the yield of that crop, that carbon crop, the more yield they're gonna get. And then every year they decide how they might want to market that carbon crop. We'll hear from Agreeners Thomas Gent today and from Will Evans, chair of this year's Oxford Farming Conference, coming up early in the new year with the theme, the power of diversity. This is an industry for everybody, no matter your background, whatever you come from, there's a place for you in this industry and, and we want everybody to feel welcome. Plus, of course, the week's farming news. We'll see how the crops and markets are doing, get the weather for the week ahead and with just a week to go till Christmas, Lincolnshire's agricultural chaplain, Alan Robson, is here with us later. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, welcome to the last regular Farming Programme podcast of 2023. For the next two weeks, we'll be taking a look backwards and forwards at the year in agriculture. More about that later. Hope your week's been good. I'm Steve Orchard. In the news this week, a collaborative effort to allow an essential seed treatment for 2024 sowing has succeeded. Emergency authorization of the force seed treatment for bulb onions was passed last week, with use enabled until 15th of April next year. Industry bodies said the threat of bean seed fly was too great without it. DEFRA is seeking the views of egg producers and fresh produce growers on the fairness of contracts in the supply chain. It'll build on a series of reviews that have taken place or are taking place to improve fairness in the pork and dairy supply chains. All these sectors have complained of unfairness in contracts amid the many challenges facing farming, such as increased energy, labour and input cost. And the reviews are open until February and they'll look at whether further legislation is needed to oversee the relationship between producers and purchaser and whether the supply chain can be made more transparent. And the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has backed calls for retailers to add a Buy British button on their websites to encourage more consumers to support local farmers. Morrison's is the first major retailer to respond to an industry call to provide shoppers with easier means of identifying UK-grown produce. The move follows an open letter written by Conservative MP Dr Luke Evans to the chief executives of the UK's eight major retailers. Just after the Christmas and New Year break, many of us will be heading to Oxford for the first farming conference of the year. But some won't, as it's sometimes seen as a bit too high level, not for ordinary farmers. Chair of the Oxford Farming Conference for 2024, Will Evans, tells us this is an image they're making efforts to change. Primarily, it's aimed at farmers. I'm a tenant farmer from North Wales, first and foremost. That's what I am. I've literally just run in the house uh, to record this from loading cattle to go to market this morning. So that's what I do. But I also think it's really, really important for farmers like me to be in rooms, events like the Oxford Farming Conference, um, where we get the chance to influence the influencers, you know, the policymakers, the politicians, the people who who have such a big impact on our on our lives in farming. There's um, CEOs of supermarkets, you know, you get uh, the agricultural attaches from all the sort of embassies in London, they're all there. The Secretary of State will be there this year. The, the Shadow Secretary of State will be there. Environmental NGOs, everybody really is kind of there. So as a farmer, it's it's just absolutely invaluable to try to be there. And we've worked very, very hard to change the image that it isn't for farmers. Yeah, there are high level discussions there, but we really do want farmers there to get the chance to face to face chat with these people. And, you know, our bursary programme, which we started last year, 
we get a free ticket for anyone working in farming and food you know 40 people there last year 40 people again this year and we do our inspire program our scholars you know i think it's sort of close to 50 percent of the audience are farmers so yeah it's it's very very important that farmers are there and i'm very passionate about that good good so rather than moaning about farming and moaning about what goes on in farming and what the government does or doesn't do on twitter for example or on facebook might be a better place to actually go to the conference and have your say there yeah i think so i mean I mean, one of the, I guess we'll come on to this, but the, one of the, the conference theme this year is the power of diversity. And it, just to explain that, that, that's diversity in all its senses. So, yes, we're thinking about people. How do we make the industry a dynamic place that people want to be? The perception of farming is sometimes seen as kind of, you know, all, all blokes leaning on gates, chewing on pieces of straw. We know that's not true. But, you know, how do we sort of get it so uh, the young people might from outside farming want to want to come into into the industry and, and bring all their um, experience with them? And farmers looking at business diversification at the moment with with changing support from government, to a diversity of, of soils and livestock breeds and, you know, incredibly diverse countryside. But crucially, diversity of thought and, you know, social media can be I think it has driven this kind of um divisiveness that we're seeing in, in society at the moment you know very entrenched views echo chambers you know people people refusing to engage what we wanted this conference to be is a, is a celebration of difference you know so so come to the conference with your different views and let's have a conversation about how we can find a way forward for the benefit of all of us yeah because as you say that there is still this image of the tweed suit uh, and the wellies and it's generally white middle-aged men mm-hmm. and if you're going to come into farming it tends to be because you're the next generation of the family and it's not always seen as that easy for people from totally outside the industry no family connection to become part of farming no really difficult and i mean and i'm a good example of of the type you mentioned i'm a 10th generation farmer and a middle-aged white man but I think it's important to say that there is also room for that as well. You know, that, that you know, I certainly like to think I bring something to my my business and the industry and, you know, as, as do we all. But it is really important to get that diversity in. And, and some of the best farmers I know are first generation farmers because they've come in from an entirely different background. They they question things, you know, why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And I know a lot of those farmers and they can energize you just being around them because they they force you to think a little bit differently. And I think that's incredibly important. We've all been in those um, those dreadful uh, meetings with school careers advisors, you know, and you say that you want to be going to farming and they they almost laugh. You know, they they kind of say, oh, well, you know, good luck with that. Um, and they don't, kind of, they don't kind of know where to go with that. What, what advice do I give to, to somebody who says they want to be a farmer? Um Exactly. And and there's so many stories like that. And I think what we're trying to do, and I guess a lot of people in the industry, not just the conference, but, you know, lots of industry bodies and, and individuals on, on social media and people doing videos and all that kind of thing. They're trying to show this is an exciting industry. It's a really, really cool industry to be in. You know, you can have really good business and a really good quality of life. So, yeah, it, it, it's partly that, I suppose, um, with, with what we're trying to do this year. Fresh pair of eyes uh, and all that. So tell us about the programme. What's going on at the conference? 
Yeah, really exciting. So I've 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 lived and breathed this this year at the program. I've never spent so much time on a spreadsheet in my entire life. Yeah, really, really exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. We've got a really diverse program as 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 goes with the theme. So it starts the day on the on the on the Thursday morning. We have some events on the Wednesday afternoon. We have a chairs welcome and we've got a really cool um social event with uh, Agrispect on the Wednesday night in, in Oxford, which I'm very excited about, which will be a lot of fun. Then the Thursday morning, the serious sessions begin. We've got the politics session. We've got um, we've got the Steves coming, uh, Steve Barkley uh, and and Steve Reid, Secretary of State, and uh, his opposite number. So that will be a really really um, interesting debate. We launched the conference with our um, report session. So we've done a report this year on diversity of supply chains. Um, you know, is the supply chain food supply chain in Britain broken? I've seen the report. It hasn't come out yet, but it, it's incredibly hard hitting, very powerful. And we're really proud of that. So we're launching the conference with a discussion around that on stage, then the politics session. Um, and then we go into lots of various different speakers on on different um, looking at different aspects of diversity. We've got a, a session on food waste, hugely important subject in terms of the environment. Um, we've got a uh, guy, Vincent Dumaziel, who's coming, he's written a book called The Seaweed Revolution, which I think is going to be uh, uh, very, very interesting. So I'm not going to go through the whole the whole lot, Steve, but we, we end the day on, on Thursday with um, a keynote speech from Sarah Dunning. Sarah is the CEO of Westmoreland Group, um, so T-Bay and Gloucester Services. You know, obviously what they're trying to do with their business and anyone who's been there will know it's it's an absolutely incredible business. It's it's business, environment and people. Uh, that's their focus with the business. And that's what our focus is with the conference this year. And then the Friday morning we do our, is more the people section, all the incredible human interest stories, we're inspiring farmers session. And then we end the, end the conference with um, a, another keynote speech from Mike Duxbury of Inclusive Farm, who's a, who's a blind farmer. And the message from that is, and I hope that people take away, is that this is an industry for everybody, no matter your background, whatever you come from, there's a place for you in this industry and, and we want everybody to feel welcome. Plenty of speakers, plenty of big hitters there. Are there exhibitors there at the conference as well? Yeah, there are exhibitors as well. Um, several exhibitors. Um, we have all our uh, charity stands as well. So we've got the four for uh, uh, farming, well-being, and mental health uh, charities in attendance as well. They'll all be there. We all know a, a, a difficult time for farming. It, this, this is at the moment, you know, and the weather and dark nights. And so, you know, we we, we always try to be very open about that. Um, so they'll all be there too. And then on on the the Wednesday afternoon, um, we have a lot of partner sessions as well, where companies and organizations put on their own events people can attend those as well and they're always really well attended and well supported so um yeah very much appreciate the support of our partners too okay so where can we go for program information find out all about it and tell us when and where it's actually happening so yeah it takes place uh third to the fifth of january uh, 2024 in oxford obviously uh it starts on the wednesday afternoon in the examination schools on the high street um brilliant venue then we move to the oxford um, museum of natural history we have a few events there surrounded by uh you know t-rexes and dinosaurs um fossils and everything like that. it's just amazing venues like night at the museum so really really cool and then um the next day we move into the examination schools and the debate and everything else it's it's uh, just the venue, if you bet anyone's ever been, will know it's it's amazing. Um, and you can find all the information um, on our website or across our social media pages. The website is ofc.org.uk. We don't have many tickets left, though. So um, if anyone wants one, if I've convinced anyone to come along, uh, do get in quick. All right, Will. Well, look forward to the conference. I shall see you there. That's Will Evans, chair of the Oxford Farming Conference. Thank you so much for joining us on the Farming Programme this morning, Will.
Thank you, Steve. Very much appreciate the support. Time for the last time this year to head to the fields in the company of our crop doctor, Sean Sparling, whose wellies and waterproofs are becoming a permanent fixture. Morning, Sean. Yes, morning, Steve. More blooming rain. I'm not going to talk about that, though. I can't find any more hyperbole or objectives than I've already used this autumn. No clean ones, anyway. Suffice to say, it's wetter than it was last week, and it was too wet then. So, not an awful lot to report agronomically or land-wise, really, with soil temperatures now plummeted to well below 2 at 10 centimetres. That's just going to slow the growth right down to just a tick over. So, applications of things like manganese or any other trace element, or herbicides for that matter, that need any level of foliar activity, or movement within or around the plant that's going to be a bit of a waste of time and money to say the least even if you could get on the land which I'm pretty sure you can't remember all the rules of good agricultural practice and soil management come into play here waterlogged soils runoff leaching into watercourses etc nudge nudge wink wink say no more so you have to question as well the point of putting an insecticide on for cereal aphids still any virus already in the crop if it's in there and with no further incursion of winged aphids likely and the likely of those aphids which may or may not have survived the conditions of the last few weeks whether that be because of the flooding apocalypse or the minus four minus five degree frost we've seen in the last 14 days whether the stragglers are going to do any more harm than they've already done is questionable they're certainly not going to spread any virus around the canopy much before late february or even into march when the winged aphids make a return so i say put the sprayer away don't make a mess for the sake of ticking a box and certainly don't waste your time and money making roots so deep you can see them from space there's no need for that it hasn't quite been cold enough so far to wipe all those aphids out certainly it has been cold enough to severely deplete the populations of grain and rose grain aphid and it'll have been sufficiently cold to make a big dent in the bird cherry oak population as well there are of course legions of money spiders out there having aphid for christmas dinner and for every other dinner for the foreseeable future so let them take care of business for you over the next few weeks i'm pretty relaxed about black grass levels by the way in those fields of winter wheats winter barleys that got drilled and pre-end and are still there actually finding any black grass that's got through the pre-ends is taking some doing so fingers crossed that the low black grass seed dormancy we saw at harvest and the well-timed glyphosate pre-drilling onto those stale seed beds has been all the success that it needed to be it certainly seems so at the moment which is a good place to be to be fair particularly in these conditions because i think the chances of getting a good result from any contact graminicides in cereals and i'm talking about the likes of hatra horus atlantis od and winter wheat etc which need some active growth but more importantly need a dry leaf you know it's going to be minimal even if we could travel the iota sulfuron mesosulfuron materials really need your soils to be at five degrees c or warmer for optimum results the broadway product need at least double that so as i say leave them in the shed and have another look in the new year all seed rape a lot of cabbage stem flea beetle larvae out here even in the good looking crop plenty of crops that may yet struggle because of the numbers of larvae that they're carrying so just think about the implications of putting probizomide on any of these questionable forward bits or indeed the more backward bits with the question mark over they're going to actually survive the winter with the pigeons rabbits deer hares cabbage stem flea beetle rape winter sem weevil onslaught such as it may be if you haven't already applied your probizomide you've got until the end of january next year to apply it as you know so by delaying it until then you might just save yourself the problems of what cultivation are going to be necessary following a crop that you decide in February 
isn't viable, but that you put the propizomide on already. So there's a minimum interval for all the crops to be drilled after a propizomide. Some crops can't follow propizomide at all. There's a 12 month restriction on many crops. And there are several caveats concerning the depth of cultivations following its use and before planting any other crops. So for those bits that you're still in and are in about, maybe hold your fire. You can't travel in these conditions anyway, so you're not going to lose anything by waiting. Disease movement as well in the oilseed rate, that will have slowed down to a stop now. And as you only get protection from fungicides against light leaf spot, that protection is only going to stop it getting any worse. So as I keep saying, if it's cold like this, it's not going to get any worse anyway. So the next really good time for light leaf spot control from a fungicide is going to be when it begins to wake up and move in the spring. That's the time we're going to do the most good and that's the time it does the most damage anyway. So probably let the weather do the holding and the protection job and just prepare for early spring from a fungicide point of view. Important too that we minimise the amount of propizomide which reaches any watercourses by the way. We can't afford to lose it as an active ingredient through ignorance or stupidity. I mean without it we are truly in a mess. So just optimise the application and do be aware of the do's and don'ts when it comes to propizomide. You don't want your drains running. You don't want heavy rain within 48 hours either side of application. You don't want to be applying it onto slopes particularly if you're applying onto frozen ground because of the risk of runoff particularly in these conditions. Best not to apply onto subsoil or mould drain fields if they've been treated that way in the last six months or so but you know all of that and you can also of course tailor the rate of propizomide. You don't need the full dose if you're not after blackgrass so have a look on the Corteva website and speak to your advisor about that. So with Christmas nicely upon us now it just falls for me to say that our issues in farming are many and they are worrying but do please keep a little perspective and count your blessings that we're just worrying about some wet fields and a busy spring to come there are way too many people around the world this Christmas who can't even be sure that they're going to make it to see another morning and there are hundreds of thousands of people in this country who won't even have a bed or a hot meal over Christmas so yes we have our problems in farming but we really should count our blessings of which we have many so thank you very much indeed to listening to my drivel for yet another year I wish you all a peaceful happy and above all a very healthy Christmas and a trouble free and hopefully hugely prosperous 2024 I'm going to take a couple of three weeks off now and just regroup myself get ready for the battle which we most definitely are going to face in a few months time so a very very merry Christmas to you all and God bless us everyone And a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and yours, Sean. Sean won't be totally absent from the farming programme over the next few weeks. He'll be joining many others taking a look back at another challenging farming year over Christmas on the Farming Programme podcast. More about that a little bit later, along with the market's weather, and we'll try and demystify carbon credits next. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate, Gransom. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. What do carbon credits mean to you? Do you understand them? What good do they do? How do you get them? How do you make money from them? I met with a greener's Thomas Gent at his family farm near Wisbeach this week and asked him to convert this complicated topic into plain English for us. Thomas, firstly, so we understand things fully, what's so bad about carbon? We know there is a climate crisis happening. And as farmers, on my farm especially, we can see it. You know, the weather's changing and it's really affecting the way I'm farming. So climate change is a big thing. Um, we need to work as hard as we can as, as a globe to, to combat it, really. Okay. And carbon is bad. Why? Is that what's causing all this problem? Yeah, so obviously, you know, carbon is, is one of the greenhouse gas emissions, um, which is leading to global warming. 
There's a lot of sort of mystification around carbon and net carbon zero and I can make money potentially out of carbon credits and this kind of thing. Can we try and sort of debunk it a little bit uh, today? Maybe start off with, we know BPS is ending, we know there's all sorts of schemes potentially to replace it and so on. Can carbon payments go some way to compensate for it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's how we're starting to see farmers use it, really, is we know we're losing BPS and we know know, for various reasons we're being pushed to farm in a more um, sustainable, environmentally friendly way, you know, mostly really for the bank balance and the continuation of the farming business. And incentives and sort of schemes like a carbon programme can help incentivize farmers to, to make that transition, really, and pay for it. Okay, And we also hear an awful lot about net carbon zero. Can you just explain that in a minute or so? <laughs> so um, uh, net zero is obviously the term that's used a lot. Um, you know, it's, for example, it's used by the NFU. They want you know, the agricultural sector get, to get to a net zero position. Um, so what that really means is the balance of your emissions and your sequestration or your storage or your you know, absorbing of carbon on farm um, is balanced out and you become a kind of net zero position um, in terms of environmental impact. And the target for this seems to be ever moving and different organisations seem to have different targets. Mm -hmm. From a farming point of view, where are we going with this? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the reality is the sooner we can get there, the better. Um, and, you know, some there are some very stretched targets. You know, some of our obviously big customers, the supply chain players, the supermarkets, they have, you know, very tough net zero targets. The NFU has their own net zero target, which I think is 2040. And, you know, really the, the country's looking at 2050. So there's various different ones. But the reality is the sooner we can get there, the better. Okay. And on a practical basis, what could a farmer do to work towards that? Yeah, so obviously it depends. The first thing you need to do as a farming business is look at your current farming system um, and understand where the biggest factors for emissions are. So, for example, on my farm, artificial fertilizer is really one of the biggest factors on my farm. Um, so that's something I can kind of focus on and look at. And then you get into the kind of questions of how do we solve the problems of our big you know, emissions factors? So um, obviously artificial nitrogen, as an example, we can start to add cover crops into rotation. We can start to add you know, legumes, nitrogen fixing crops, um, widen the rotation, add all more organic matter. So it really, you know, there's not one size fits all answer. It really depends on the situation and the context of your farming business. And ploughing versus no-till? Yeah, yeah. So um, that's obviously a hotly debated thing. Um, We know that no tillage is um, kinder on the soil um, and better for your carbon position. You know, there's obviously a lot less emissions because you're going in the field less, you're burning less diesel. Um, but also you're not exposing that kind of underground soil to the to the atmosphere as much. And so you don't get that much carbon release um, through no tillage. But obviously the tricky thing is there's lots of farming situations where you, you might need to do a little bit of tillage. You know, you've got a, a root crop. We still want to eat potatoes. We still want to eat carrots. Who knows? So then those situations, you still need to do something. It's just thinking about how you can do it best on your farm and your soil type. And is there... A, a sort of cost to this because obviously if one would think if this solution had been either cost neutral or cost beneficial people would have done it years ago so is there a cost to farmers to change systems yeah that's a super good question so so the short answer is yes <laughs> the long answer is not in the long term. So, um, for example, on my farm, we've been practicing no-till for about 15 years. This is going to be our 16th year. And definitely at the start, there is a cost. There's, a, there's kind of a two-factor cost. There's a factor cost in terms of 
different machinery and different requirements, you know, as well as different knowledge you need that, you know, it's expensive to learn. And then there's the kind of risk factor cost of um, we know that often at the start of the transition, it can affect yields slightly. So there are definitely in the initial phases of transition, the sort of first three, four, five years, depending on your situation, there can be cost. Um, and it depends on the kind of climate conditions, how big that cost is going to be. But what we do know is over the longer term, so five, six, seven, eight years plus, it definitely becomes, well, definitely for me, it becomes a lot more profitable. And that's what most people say. It's just getting to that position is the is the expensive bit. So don't expect to get your expenditure back in a year or two. No, I think it takes a few years. I mean, it depends on the situation. You know, I know farmers that have transitioned and they've, you know, made you know more money in the first year. And there's some people where the yield's been affected quite dramatically and it's, you know, it hasn't helped. But it's that commitment to sticking with the ambition for, you know, five plus years is that's the tricky bit, really. Is there any type of farm or particular crops that are being grown that are more successful than others? Non-inversion farming systems work better. So, for example, here we don't do any root crops. We grow about 800 hectares of um, cereals and sort of multi-year lays and things and that lends itself really well to it because I'm, I don't need to do any sort of servants the tricky thing is you know especially around kind of spalding area um, you know guys that have obviously producing some of the you know best veg we need in the country we need the veg um, but that veg often requires soil disturbance and they they got a bit of a trickier situation and some of the equipment we use of course is not good for soil disturbance is it yeah absolutely so we we actually use we obviously use a no-till drill here um, and that the no-till drill was developed actually by my granddad. Um, so he has the patent on it and it's licensed to weavings in the UK and licensed to companies all over the world. That was definitely the trickiest factor when we transitioned sort of 15 years ago was the right machinery. There does wasn't much available then. But now there's a huge amount of good machinery available. So that isn't an issue as much anymore. OK, let's move on to the subject of carbon credits, mm-hmm. because this is a, a, a mystery to an awful lot of people. And somebody cited the example to me of putting solar panels on the top of the house and this, A, saves you money, which we can understand, but you can sell it to the grid. And I think there's an awful lot of people thinking, well, how does that work? How does it actually get into the grid? And when it comes to carbon credits, there seems to be this this same misunderstanding or lack of understanding of how it works. How can I actually make money from what's in the ground. So do you want to just take us through what are carbon credits, first of all? Yeah, absolutely. So one carbon credit represents one tonne of CO2 equivalent. So it's not just carbon, it's all the kind of greenhouse gas emissions, but they're all kind of equated to a tonne of carbon to make it standardised. And one credit, yeah, is is an action that you've done to either reduce that tonne of carbon emitting to the atmosphere or, you know, kind of physically sequestering it and storing it in whatever means it might be soil, it might be woodland, it might be who knows what it might be. So there's all of these different technologies and factors that you can do, you know, globally to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Obviously, they need to be paid for because it costs to do lots of these activities. So what we have is on the other side, companies that are looking to maybe compensate for unavoidable emissions or, um, you know, really just do some good ESG stuff are willing to pay to be able to finance that those technologies and those actions to take place. And as agriculture, we've, we, you know, we've seen the latest sort of UN IPCC reports come out um, and agriculture is, you know, you know, touched as being kind of the one of the key factors that is going to be able to um, reverse climate change if it's done right. Um, and the carbon credit mechanism to help incentivize farmers to do that is super valuable. Okay. So 
How is this evidenced, proven? If, if I say that I've produced or reduced my carbon outputs by one tonne of CO2, mm-hmm. how, how do we know that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is this where we get onto certification? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have to, to be able to give the kind of carbon credit any valid, validity and value in the market, it has to be um, certified to the right standards. So obviously there's, there's kind of a few different standards in the world. Um, the important one is, is one called Vera, which is, um, which is the one we, we're using. Um, and it's yeah, essentially what it does is it helps us, gives us the guidelines as a greener to help the farmers do the quantification to be able to issue the credit to the right standard. We obviously work with a farmer to kind of collect the data, um, do various soil sampling and verifications, um, and then audits um, to be able to issue that credit. Okay, and then we talk about trading carbon credits. Mm-hmm. Is this another another one of these things that sounds very easy to do, but is not that easy, or is it the other way around? It's actually easier than you might think. How does that work? <laughs> yeah, I think the credit problem is easier than you might think. What we do is we issue the credit and we issue it to the farmer, and then he chooses every year however he would like to utilize it. So really, farmers should really just kind of simply think of this as just another crop. And obviously, the, the harder they work to kind of improve the yield of that crop, that carbon crop, the more yield they're going to get. And then every year, they decide how they might want to market that carbon crop. And there's, a, there's a various different ways they might want to do it. Um, obviously, the service where we offer is we'll help them do it. We'll do it for you. Um, we can help you do the trading. But we have farmers that trade it themselves. We have farmers that trade it through their supply chains, lots of different scenarios. There must be pros and cons to this cost versus benefit and, and so on. What are the pros and cons? I don't see that there's, a, there's, there's no problems. You can always argue that the science is going to improve and get better because there is a climate crisis. The world is massively dying. We need to do something quite now to, to help. And you know, if carbon credits can be that mechanism and that function to incentivise farmers and you know, pay people to really do some good stuff, there's no issues as long as it's done to the right standards and the right verification and, and done properly. And I guess that's what a greener does. So who is a greener? Yeah, yeah great question. So um, a greener is a Danish company based in Copenhagen. Um, we started our carbon credit program in 2021, harvest year, so we're running harvest year cycles. Um, and since then, we've grown quite rapidly. We're now in uh, 17 European markets. We've got about 2 million hectares under management. I look after kind of UK farmer-facing operations. Okay. And if we had a farmer who's listening to this and thinking, yeah, okay, I get it. I kind of understand where we're coming from with this. Where do they start? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you're a farmer that's, you know, starting to look at that transition to a more lower tillage-based systems, um, the first thing you need to do is do some calculations for your farm to see what it's worth for you. You know, there's obviously no cost to that. There's no, um, there's no kind of commitment or anything. Um, so yeah, if you want to kind of get in touch with us at Green Arrow and we can do some calculations and tell you what it might be worth for your farm. Okay. And I'm assuming there are other companies that offer this service around the UK. Yeah, obviously, but obviously we're the best. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a sneaky feeling you might might say that. And finally, Thomas, where could somebody go for more information on both net zero, carbon credits and a greener? I think the industry is definitely starting to kind of learn a bit more knowledge. You know, this is a new sector. Everybody's, we're we're training and um, educating people as much as we can. 
Um, but yeah, if you want the best information, please just come and get in touch with us. Just go to agrina.com or Google Agrina. Um, you'll find our contact details and you can ask us any questions you feel like. <laughs> Thomas Jett, thank you very much indeed for inviting me along to the farm today and telling us all about Agrina. Cool, thank you very much. Links FM Farming Market Reports. Starting as usual with livestock and from Mason's Rural at Louth Livestock Market auctioneer Ed Middleton. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Steve. Prime heifers this week, all in average 269.19 pence per kilo, and prime steers, all in average 273.49 pence per kilo. Top price in the heifers and the steers this week were F. Wallace and Son of Biscothorpe. Heifers topped per head at £1,462.13 and steers topped at £1,667.50. Moving on to the sheep, this week we had an SQQ of 263.03 pence per kilo and an all-in average of 260 pence per kilo. A very fast trade from start to finish. We have many pens, 280 to 290 pence per kilo and an SQQ up on the week by 15 pence. Topping the day's prime lamb trading were both Chamberlain Brothers and P.S. Marsden and Son, both at £138. In the pence per kilo, top this week were A.J. Colson and Sons, which topped at 298 pence per kilo, closely followed by G.W. Allison at 293 pence per kilo. On to the cool ewes, this week we averaged £96.95, pence, with a top price of £152. In all, an excellent yarding of ewes this week and what a trade to match. Best continental types regularly trading between 140 and 150 with mules around the 90 to 100 pound mark. Top spot goes to Field Farming Company of Newark at 152 with others from the same home at 128. Scrivelsby Farms Limited had an excellent run of ewes this week topping at 140 pounds with other pens at 137, 135 and 128. Onto the store lambs, a very small entry this week, which topped at £75 for Tea Kime of Lincoln. A reminder, we're business as usual on Monday the 18th with the sale of prime store and breeding cattle and all classes of sheep. For entries, please do not hesitate to contact me. I'm Edward Middleton, auctioneer at Louth Livestock Market. Thanks, Ed. And with a look back at the week on the grain markets, Open Fields Kit Dickinson. Morning to you, Kit. Good morning, Steve. Wheat prices tumbled post the December USDA report despite it being viewed as relatively neutral. As expected, Australia and Canada production was raised by 2 million metric tonnes, partly offset by a reduction in 1 million metric tonnes in Brazil. US exports were raised by 25 million bushels to reflect their recent sales to China of soft red winter wheat, which will reduce their ending stocks. There have been no further flash sales to China thus far, although there are reports that US wheat is being loaded out of the Pacific Northwest ports, destination China. In the meantime, the bots are firmly in charge of the derivative markets, with managed funds still heavily short of wheat and maize futures, and they are eager to feast on any negative news that there is. Fundamentals are taking a back seat, but at least there are signs that demand is picking up whilst logistics is becoming increasingly challenging as we move into the winter months. Weather in South America and Europe is still far from ideal, with the global economic situation appearing to showing some positive signs of recovery. There are still two wars going on, which only adds to the uncertainty. We can only hope for better things in the new year. Looking at barley this week, there is still plenty of malting barley to deliver in the EU and UK between now and 2024, and we are seeing more issues with quality at intake and the supply side starts to get tighter. The demand side has been coming under pressure, which at the moment is helping to balance out the lower supply side. The UK malster still has tonnage to buy, especially in the forward months of April to June. 
and the export trade is moving well, although new business is very slow. If demand does pick up in the new year, the maltsters may come back to the market, then the surplus may match the demand. The spring barley area for 2024 crop is expected to be up 13%, but this has not been planted yet and weather conditions will play a huge part. We don't think that the maltsters will carry over much of the 23 crop this year, so the outcome of the new crop is going to be one to watch. Malting premiums are holding up for both old and new crop at the moment, which suggests that the supply and demand picture is tighter than has been previously reported. Oilseed rape, the market focus, continues to be on Brazil weather with concerns that the hot and dry weather could reduce the soybean yield potential in the world's top producer, Brazil. Plantings have been delayed from the latest report of AgRural showing a 91% of the expected area has been planted, lagging behind last year's 95% at this time. Last week saw the monthly USDA supply and demand report, which has trimmed its forecast for Brazilian soybeans to 161 million tonnes from 163 previously. However, this is above the average estimate of 160 and the Brazilian government agency CONAB's figure of 160.177 million tonnes. So looking at prices this week, feed wheat for January 176 to 186, March 180 to 190, May 184 to 194 and November new crop 194 to 204. Milling wheat premiums are currently £60. Feed barley for January 148 to 158, March 151 to 161, May 153 to 163 and November new crop 163 to 173. Malting premiums are circa £80. And oil seed rate for January 333 to 343, March 335 to 345 and May 337 to 347. Thanks, Kit. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. The high pressure eases and we've a mostly dry week apart from Tuesday when we're expecting some heavy rain and expect it to be windy and cloudy. The winds will be in the mid-teens MPH but gusty from the west to southwest. Daytime highs around 10 Celsius and not much colder overnight. Christmas next week then, no farming programme on the radio for the next two weeks, but the podcast online edition will be there as usual, and we're joined by many from the industry for a look back at 2023 and a look forward to the new year in farming. That's on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve from 7am online, the free Lynx FM app, all podcast platforms, or ask your smart speaker to play the latest farming programme. And talking of Christmas, hopefully you'll manage to take a bit of a break from work and enjoy a celebration with family and friends where possible. And to get us in the mood, a few thoughts from agricultural chaplain Canon Alan Robson. We're in this season of uh, Christmas and lots of people will go to church just <laughs> perhaps even just to get away from all the misery and see a bit of light and hope. However you understand the birth, it didn't happen because it was all perfect. It happened because everything wasn't perfect. I've often thought imperfection is where, if you believe in the divine, he chooses to come. And I I don't think religion should ever be used to escape from realities. Faith, or however you think of where your values lie, faith for me helps me to work out, uh, give those difficult realities a meaning. And uh, there'll be a lot about joy and peace and hope but I don't think it was ever meant to be a sanitized joy, peace, hope, or wishful thinking joy, peace, hope. 
I think it was meant to be deeper than all that. And and, and, I, and I think there's no way people are going to face all this um, turmoil without a, a, a joy that's really deep. And, you know, that phrase we learned in school, a peace that surpasses all human understanding. We've got to bring all ourselves and all, all the joys and sorrows and disappointments, and we've got to find hope. And we find hope in our friends, don't we? And we find hope in one another, and we find hope in listening to other people's stories of rising above their tragedies. And they're people of faith and no faith, but, um, you know, for Christians... Uh, hopelessness is not an option, actually. And so I, I think you know, how we take that message of love and hope and peace and joy and make it real in our lives, never meant to be easy, it never, never was easy. But um, I think we have to help each other find that joy. And I see that in the farming community all the time. Yeah, there has been various tragedies in our county recently, things people are having to bear is really quite painful to watch. But what I find is the many, many people, neighbours who are far, far away, <laughs> ring up, they write letters, they do emails, they send messages through their mutual friends. And I think that's what we've got to keep doing um, throughout this next year. Farming is one of those industries, sectors, businesses, call it what you will, that does actually bring people together even though as you say they may well be quite a distance apart there is very much that community isn't there there is and there's long established circles of friends maybe it's from uh university college days you know i've seen it throughout this year i've had tragically too many farming funerals farm workers funerals farmers wives funerals and not one of them has been less than 300 and often upwards of 500. And it's just so humbling to realise the impact that individuals' lives can have on one another. And, and people want to show their support and want to show how valued they thought of the lady or the chap. And um, even though they probably didn't always agree, agree God forbid me say that any farmer can be cantankerous, but some are, <laughs> and, and 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 people you know do turn up and say, forgive and forget. We march forward. Yeah, they do. They yeah. do. And as we head into what I, I think you're right is going to be a challenging year, another challenging year. Mm. Let's take that peace for the next few days and that joy, and celebrate Christmas. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Alan. Well, yeah. you have a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And uh, thank you once again for yeah. uh, another year on the farming programme. Well, likewise. And don't eat too much turkey or beef or lamb or nut roast. I need Whatever you, you have. You've spoiled it now, haven't you? <laughs> By saying that. <laughs> oh, anyway. All Alan, you Cheers. take care. Do join us for our end-of-year specials on the podcast online edition of the Farming Programme next week and New Year's Eve. And we're back on the radio at Lynx FM on the 7th of January. I'm Steve Orchard, and from me and mine and everyone on the Farming Programme, to you and yours, have a very Merry Christmas and a happy and prosperous New Year. The Farming Programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.